0: You're listening to Pop! The History Makers with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to this first part of this roundup of Season 1 of Pop! The History Makers. If you haven't heard the podcast before, then this will give you a taste of what's it about. And of course, you'll hear some excerpts from the stars I was fortunate enough to interview for Season 1. In Part 2, I'll be looking back with Justin Curry from Delamitri, Alexander Bard from Army of Lovers... Anne Clark, John Watts, and Mikel Munzing from Snap. Now, my own background is as a host and interviewer for MTV Europe during the late 80s and early 90s. And during the lockdown of early 2021, I found I had some time on my hands. I'd actually convinced a friend of mine to start his own podcast. And then when his was running, he asked me, why didn't I start one? At first I wasn't sure, I wasn't interested in repeating my past, but had missed interviewing people. That was always a real privilege, and the idea of catching up started to fascinate me. After all, we all change and develop over the years and look back at our past in a different light. And we all have experiences in common. My first interview this time round was with Derek William Dick better known as Fish, and best known to most as the Marillion frontman who carved out a solo career for himself afterwards. Now, I hadn't seen Fish for 25 years, and the last time was when I was working for Viva 2, a now defunct music channel in Germany. I think it must have been around about 1995. And this was like talking to an old friend. He's experienced a lot in his life. But for me, what was interesting was how his life had changed back in the 80s when Kaylee became a massive hit.
1: No matter what you think about how it's going to go, nothing prepares you or trains you for that onslaught, for that media onslaught and that attention that comes at you, you know, on the back of an international
0: hit single. You know? What was that onslaught then? What 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 do you exactly mean by that? Because, you know, I you can say it and I can I can grasp it in terms of this is a big change, but I don't know what the intrusion is. I don't know what they're what they're trying to get out of you. How you Well can... everybody everybody wants to know who Kay was for a kickoff
1: and uh which I refused to do. I never ever gave her identity away, you know. And it wasn't until she died. It, I mean, even she kept it quiet until she, uh, she'd sadly died of cancer quite a few years ago. And in the last day, I actually met up with her. You know, she was married with kids and, and we met up and she'd never actually heard the full album. She came up to see her cousin in Edinburgh and we went out for lunch and she came back to the house and met my daughter and, and stuff and I gave her the album. And she, when I gave her the album, she said, she listened to it in the car on the way home. And she said, I just cried the whole way. She said, I never realized that that was what, what you wrote about
0: me. And how wonderful a surprise it must have been to be the muse of a song and not even know. Looking at lives in retrospect is often more illuminating and frankly, more interesting. We reflect when we are older. One person I was really pleased to get for interview was Lee John, the imagination front man. Remember Body Talk and Just an Illusion? Well, Lee has constantly continued to carve out a career for himself since the heyday of the band. And during the interview, we talked fathers. And it was clear that both of us had looked for confirmation
2: from our fathers. I was always trying to prove... Myself, and to the point where there was a moment when imagination became successful when I came back to America after coming back to the UK. And he turned and he said to me, um, which was very, very, it cut me in two. Was that um, oh, if I didn't send you back to England, maybe none of this would have happened. Instead of saying, "Wow, son, you've done really well. Look at you," da 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 da. And afterwards, and uh, right from that moment on, I thought, I don't need you. I'm, I'm bigger and badder and better and I don't need you. I can get on and do it myself. You know, you've provided me a platform of birth, but I can now move on and do my own thing. And even before he passed away, which he passed away in 2000, he was very much still thinking that what I did was a, a job, but the real job was come back to St. Lucia, look after the land, look after the property. That's where you should be, you know, should be doing. but when he passed away in his belongings I found all my albums oh, wow. and it was like you know you know and he but he'd been talking to other people about me that was a situation but he would never do it to my I think in my face but I think he was brought up in that Victorian sort of you know this English tradition um, which was passed down to the Caribbean of not really praising your children <laughs>
0: You're listening to POP, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Fascinating that the confirmation he must have been searching for came after his father's death. An open and revealing interview from Lee John. And of course, you can still hear the whole interview. It's online. One person I was determined to get for the podcast was an old friend of mine, Durga McBroom of Blue Pearl. She performed at my birthday party in Athens, Greece in the 90s. At the time, the multi-talented singer, dancer and actress was riding high with Naked in the Rain, a thumping dance track written with former Killing Joke Man-turned-producer Youth. I knew her interview would be fascinating, and I was not disappointed.
3: So it wasn't really until I got into my 20s that I started to really understand uh, racism in America because I was shielded from it. I grew up surrounded by wealth.
0: What was that moment like? I mean, what happened to you that um, made you really aware? Was there a moment?
3: Well, there was one in particular. I mean, because the kids we grew up with were fairly accepting. So, I mean, I know, I know seeing, watching on television, there was a show called Julia that starred Diane Carroll, the late great who was actually a patient of my father's. My father was a clinical psychologist, so I used to play with her little bitch daughter who I couldn't stand, spoiled little brat. Anyway, um, uh, so seeing her on television as the lead and a professional and not a domestic in a television series was a big deal, especially because my mother was a doctor. So, but I only had that one role model. All the rest were white. But this doesn't register when you're growing up. It just is what's normal. You you're get used to not seeing yourself represented. But I remember going to <clears throat> New York once when I was in my 20s. And I, uh, there was a huge storm in Colorado. So my flight that was going via Denver got canceled. And I was routed through Houston, Texas. And I got on that flight and I got to Houston and there was someone at the gate telling everyone where to go to catch their connecting flight. And the person there told me a gate that was way on the other side of the airport. And if you know Houston airport, it's enormous. It's like a city. And so by the time I got there and realized that the gate I was meant to go to was two gates over from where I just landed. By the time I got back there, my flight had left. And so I was full of righteous indignation and rage. And I went to the counter and I said, your employee gave me the wrong gate and caused me to miss this flight. You will be putting me in a hotel tonight and blah, blah, blah. And this person, I could just see it. I I can speak the better part of four languages. I've been to, at this point in my life, about 48 countries. They just looked me up and down and just saw another N word. And they said, well, everyone else seems to have made their flights. And they didn't do anything. And it was at that moment I realized exactly what it felt like to be treated like an N-word. How did that make you feel? Horrible, obviously. Completely powerless, powerless. And um, just, I felt, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Impotent. And you know you get this flush of rage in your face and you know that there's nothing you can say that's going to change the situation so you just tuck your tail between your legs and go away and you know live to fight another day.
0: at Broom there and hopefully we'll be hearing new music from Blue Pearl soon. Now one of my favorite bands of the 80s was Heaven 17. I saw them on tour in Hamburg a few years ago and interviewed both Glenn Gregory and Martin Ware after the show. So for me, catching up with Martin for the podcast was another thrill. Of course, he was part of the original lineup of the Human League, which also included Ian Craig Marsh, who was with him and Glenn in Heaven 17. And with Ian Craig Marsh, he formed BEF, the British Electric Foundation, Their album in the 80s Music of Quality and Distinction Volume 1 consisted of known artists covering classic songs and one of these was the Tina Turner Temptation cover Ball of Confusion and that track led to Martin producing the Al Green classic Let's Stay Together for Tina which was key to her comeback but here's Martin talking about first working with Tina on Ball of Confusion
4: one One thing that characterizes the work that i I've done throughout my career i i think is my sense of uh daring i don't i'm I'm fairly fearless when it comes to creativity. I'll have a go at stuff I'm not musically trained i know i can't read or write music and there I am in a in, 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 a, uh, in a studio with a sixty piece orchestra and some of the best session players in, in Britain, if not the world, performing, you know, writing string arrangements with our string arranger and I'll you know, have a go at anything. And that, that goes for the production side of things as well, working with Tina Turner, who made River Deep Mountain High one of my favourite singles of all time. You know, I just, at that time, just thought if I continue being brave, which wasn't really that much of an effort, to be honest. Uh, it's not. That's not the same as being reckless, by the way. It's it, you. You. You calculate what you think is worth taking a risk on. But, but you just think, if something fails, well, you know, it's like a, buses. You know, another one will come along in a minute. I'll just. I'll just produce some more stuff for somebody else, and that'll be successful. And amazingly, this kind of theory worked. Um, until late, until the second half of the eighties, when we kind of ran out of steam with um, and confidence to a certain extent with Hem uh, 17, but it it definitely worked for my production career.
0: Um, I remember talking to Tina Turner and Roger Davis about Ball of Confusion, right? Which was on the album, and I remember yeah. they both told me. Roger told me that actually he had to set up a gig in Sweden to pay for the trip to London. I don't know, really. Yeah, and that that when they came to London, um, Tina went into the studio, just sang it in one, ball of confusion, and thought that's right. that okay, this was just a rehearsal. <laughs> and that you, you had both said, no, that's it.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, perfect.
0: yeah. Is that how it
4: worked? Yeah, I remember saying, um, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll do one for Lloyd's. That's what they say, isn't it? So as insurance, in case something went wrong, but that's it. You know, it was the perfect performance straight out of the bag. But I've told this story many times before, but um, she said after she'd finished, I mean, she was in the studio for like an hour. That was it. And um, she said at the end, she said, Martin, Martin there was a, that was kind of difficult to sing. You know, it sounded like there was more than one guy on that. And I said, it's The Temptations. There's four of them. He said, "Who are they?" Honest to God, I swear on my children's life. That shows how far she turned her back on on uh, on soul music, black music. She wanted to be Rod Stewart, really, or 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 Mick Jagger, or or a combination of them and David Bowie. You know.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, Tina is such a. Uh or at that period, I mean, I met her later probably, but such a sort of amazing energy to her amazing. and, a, and a, a wonderful, wonderful character.
4: You know what, what's a, but just to finish on the Tina point, she, uh, she's just a performer in the studio or on stage or, or on a film or anything. What she's, what, she's, born, she's just born to perform. So when she performs in the studio, it's like she's performing to an audience. You know, she never got involved in the production of anything, as far as I know, uh, definitely not with us. Uh, she didn't show any interest in it, or mixing, or approval of mixers. Or She was just happy to be, you know, one of the best soul singers on earth.
0: You're listening to POP, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Martin Ware talking about the wonderful Tina Turner. Now, one of the themes that has come through doing these podcasts is the idea of a mentor, a teacher, someone who helps develop the artistic talent, pushes the fledgling artist forward, and often installs an ethos which remains with them throughout their career. Kevin Godley of 10CC and Godley & Cream experienced that with his art teacher at college, and Westbam, the Berlin-based DJ, had his own mentor, William Rutke, a family friend who was to later marry his mother. First, here's Westbam, followed by Kevin Godley.
6: He came in, um, into the uh, family through my father. He was an assistant to my father at Art uh, Academy in, in PH in Münster. And uh, later he became uh, the spouse of my mother and they even married later on so um, and with me he always seemed to have like you know that's my my impression i might be completely wrong you know when i say it but like uh i always get the feeling from my parents that i was like the golden boy that kind of this might be completely wrong you know maybe they thought nothing like that or they thought my small brother was the golden boy or my my small sister or whatever or my big sister but so there was four of us so but that was the the vibe I got from them and kind of this was quite taken on by William William kind of like discovered me as a special person but it wasn't quite uh, um, clear what uh, my speciality would be you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like but he, he he took me on the road so in the early 80s when i was a teenager he was quite into all that political fight against uh, you know what eventually became the greens against uh, uh nuclear energy you know Gorleben and stuff and also kind of like you know legalize it obviously and then um um and then with some sympathy, even like for like the fight against the state, the Bader-Meinhof group, you know, some, some sympathy for that. So in the early 80s, he would take me to the earliest uh, and alternative Kevin press in Frankfurt. They were like, you know, the uh, what be- eventually became the Tuts uh, in Germany, you know, came from the alternative press, a product of the 70s, early 80s. So I was drawing political little things against atomic energy and stuff, you know? And I even uh, did a a book at the time and then already uh, with my drawings about school that I hated school, you know? It was called Schul Horror, School Horror, you know? And that had all my little drawings about school, about my hate of school. So typical anti-authoritarian. So, and at the time, uh, William was already my manager. So, and then uh, when I was 17, I was in, uh, William was living in Berlin uh, and I joined him because anti-authoritarian. I didn't want to join the German army, you know, and in West Berlin, you didn't have to go. In those days, I the nightlife like ever since i was 15 with the new wave clubs and even tramping to you know hitchhiking to berlin nightlife was was a big thing for me and kind of like then uh, william introduced me to some clubs and kind of like i that's when i got the idea djing that's a fascinating job yeah.
7: I think really that, that this drive to keep changing and experiment came about after spending a number of years at art college. We, you know, me and Laura Cream, we were both 60s art college kids. And that's where that came from. The, 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 at that time there was a there was a push to keep looking, keep searching. And we had a very interesting tutor. Who whose sort of mo was was different to all the others. He would uh, he would run his fine art class in a very strange way. Um, he would first of all find out find out what you were good at, and if you were good at if you were right handed and you were good at painting, he would make you paint left handed, uh, but using charcoal instead of a brush. In other words, it sounds really bizarre. But what it does, it takes you out of your comfort zone and makes you try things that you never really wanted to try because there was no need. But what he was trying to say was, if you try something different, if you keep looking for new ways to apply whatever talent you have, you may come up with something quite extraordinary that you may never have come up with if you'd done it the normal way. And occasionally, one did. One did. Not all the time, but it was something that's kind of stuck with me. Um, and I guess I've always, I've always sort of gone against the situation where there's a predictable outcome, um, if you like. If, I, if I'm writing a song and I can't write music to a brief, I find that very difficult. I, I, I sort of rail against that. Um, because I always like a situation where something is in flux until it becomes something that I didn't know that it would become. Um, that's that's the excitement for me. Um, it's not like walking across the road with your eyes closed. It's not quite like that. But it's a bit like that. There always has to be a, a little bit of a little bit of jeopardy in there. A little bit of danger because just going back to. Uh, what Bill Clark said um, um, uh, there may be something extraordinary just beyond your grasp that you may be able to grasp if you go about it this way it's amazing it sounds like I mean he installed in a way
0: a philosophy into you didn't he it sounds like
7: yeah very much so excuse
0: me I mean one thing about that type of uh, idea is that not only is there nothing without risk but failure is part of risk. So it also means that you have to open yourself up to failure. Is that something that during that period with Bill Clark, during that period at art college, that's where you allowed yourself to start failing in order to succeed?
7: Yeah. Although the definition of failure in painting and art is a fine line. If, if you know what I mean. You, you're you really the only one who knows if you've done something interesting, I think. But he turned it into a game. It was, it was kind of... He had people standing on one leg blindfolded doing stuff, you know. It, it, it was pretty crazy. But I think he did that because he wanted to make the experience fun and not something to be dreaded.
0: Kevin Godley, who also talks about his success with 10cc, his work as a video director and his music with Low Cream, and that podcast is a real treat, and before that was westpam and both interviews are in full and can be found on season one. So now we come to the Fairbrass Brothers, or Right Said Fred as we know them, and they talked about their long route to success and the hard work that they had had to put in. But the most poignant part of their interview was when Richard shone a light on how it was to be suddenly, after years of trying, famous and the dark side of fame of press intrusion into his private life. At the time, Richard's long term partner was Stuart and he had HIV. The press attacks on me inevitably filtered through to him. So it
8: that, that's what I found really um upsetting. They 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 um they chose him as a target as much as me. Yeah, they did, yeah. And he yeah. couldn't answer back. He you know, he had no he had no platform, if you like. Um, so that that it did make it very difficult. And for him, he couldn't really work at the time because he was too ill. So he was trapped in that, not trapped, but he was in the house, you know, with HIV, not always feeling that great, while I was, you know, flying all over the world doing this kind of, you know, I'm too sexy with my shirt stuff, you know. So that was a very um, unhappy time, actually. Yeah. It was. It was, a really, it was very tough to balance that. Yeah, it was. Yeah,
9: it was yeah. really, really
8: difficult. And um,
9: and mu- mum, mum, da- mum cried for a year yeah, when da- I came out. Da- dad had died a couple <laughs> of, a couple of years before, so uh, mum was. But is her this her news to your mum? Oh yes.
8: Yeah. Oh, it's something that came know. out of the blue. Yeah. yeah all right. They, they say yeah. Mum's no. Mum, my mum, our mum didn't know at all. No, no, no. My, my mum said dad Did? All. Funny enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
9: Mum would have been a mum would have been a, the sort of mum that the craze would have had. We could have we could do no wrong. Yeah. It was impossible for us to do actually any wrong at all. We could have My boys. Yeah, we could have shot someone in the front room <laughs> and she would have made an excuse for it. Yeah, you know?
8: yes. Yeah, we could have put we yeah, we could have done anything. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything. Yeah, um Dad, I think Dad had a suspicion because I remember going for a walk with him. Yeah, I used to take the train down to see them in, in West Country and then walk back with dad to, to, the, to the cottage. Mm-hmm. And dad would say things like, so this Stuart chap, what, what does he do for a living? <laughs> well, he's a hairdresser. Right, <laughs> oh, well, That's tick, tick number one. <laughs> so how long have you known Stuart? Oh, about 10 years. Oh, yeah. tick number two. Yeah. So where does he live? Well, he lives with me, uh-huh. tick number three. <laughs> so, gradually, <laughs> do,
6: do, 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 do.
8: so God bless dad. I think he was sort of fishing, yeah. Um, I, maybe mum knew and she just blanked it off. She didn't, you know what I mean? She just didn't want to face it. I you know. said at the beginning that they had
0: gay friends, or they had a uh, friends that yes, you yes, think yes, now yes. were probably gay, so yes. they obviously either they were so blind,
3: <laughs> yes, yes,
0: yes, or they actually didn't really. Want to know, and everything was okay as long as they didn't know.
8: I think that's yes, what it is. You yes. know, it's the old saying, do what you, you can do what you like as long as you don't frighten the horses. Yeah. You know, I think it's there's an element of that about it. I think mum and dad, I think they they had friends where they suspected something, you know, a, a, more a little unusual was going on. But I think they just, they just, um, they did the old Victorian thing, which is they just um, turned the blind. Yeah, shake the newspaper, shake the newspaper, light your pipe, and, and forget it. You
0: know, it'll <laughs> go away. No You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. The gay thing back
8: then was very—it um, was quite militant, and it, and it, it, it wasn't a very—it wasn't a very attractive um, thing to be gay. I mean, as, a, as, a, as, a, as part of a you know this gay community, which I've never believed in, but that it was a fairly—I um, don't know—it it had a political edge to it, which made it for some people very, very difficult yeah. to, uh, to accept. Um, and I've always felt, the same with the trans issue, I've always felt it's, it's a personal issue. The minute you politicise it, and I know sometimes you do have to politicise it, but the minute you politicise it, it, it turns an awful
0: lot of people off. But you same. have, you have, in a sense, um, I don't know if the words politicised it, but you've actually, when you went to Russia, I mean, you stood up yes. for let's, LGBTQ rights. You stood up yes. and, and, and made a point, which was a very, yes. you know, I thought that was bloody strong, because I'm not sure... I'd have the guts to do what you did.
8: No, I mean we we didn't. I don't think we realised how aggressive it was going to be over there mm. until we actually got knocked about. Yeah, and, and when, when we were told when we were invited
9: to go and join the the the, the event, we weren't told it was a protest and or march, or anything, we just it was an event. Yeah, and it was it, it was a gay thing, but it was also more to do with civil liberties. It, the whole thing was wrapped up in that. So we wandered we wandered along, not knowing exactly what we were going walking into. Uh, but also we didn't know that the mayor of Russia hadn't given it a license, so the whole thing was illegal. So we, um, and once we got out the van, uh, the, the uh, people carrier thing, just drove that off. Drove off and left us there. Yeah, a, a double quick, <laughs> and left us there. We were, And the press were, were filming these guys, and <clears throat> they had these masks on, and it was um, uh, like a, to stop them getting AIDS. You know? well, we, I thought it was anti-pollution. The original was pollution, of yeah. course. <laughs> so i said no how, you, how stupid am i i said no you friggin donut it's <laughs> to do with this is an hiv thing and they all do this sort of um, folk, folks sort on of bl- traditional Russian. Yeah, thing. Sort of yeah, like yeah. whatever sort like whatever. That'll save
0: you from HIV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly.
9: So <laughs> when the cameras saw us, they all swung away from these Russian guys and started filming us you know, um, Reuters and CNN and Associated Press, all those people. And this really pissed these guys off. So we started getting beaten up and hit pretty quickly after that event. Uh, I got held, Richard got smacked in the face by. Uh, some I lost guy. my glasses. Yeah. I got held by coppers and I don't remember at the time but I must have got a bit of a kicking in the back because the next day I had really bad bruising over the back of my legs and the lower back um, and then we just because we have worked in Russia and the East before you can't argue with these people because you will get a beating and the coppers won't intervene they'll let it happen mm. it's, 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 it's not like it used to be over here um, so we just said the best thing to, uh, our advice is to Our advice to ourselves was to get the fuck out of there. So (laughs) we we grabbed our stuff and we just legged it. And uh, it turned into a bit of a Benny Hill thing because there was us at the front, camera crews, the blokes who wanted to beat us up. (laughs) 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 Our our, our tour manager trying to keep up with us. And because we we worked there a lot, we know how corrupt it is. We saw these coppers buy like a burger van and we gave them some money. And we said these blokes coming here, whack them, and they just got out their sticks and piled into them just because we paid them.
8: <laughs> <laughs> one, and one, I, rem- so, I remember that so we hit. One little old lady came up to me because I was, I had blood on my face. One little old lady came up to me and gave me a tissue.
9: Yes, I shall
8: never forget that. Act of kindness. Yeah, yeah. just that that small act Mm. of kindness, you know, Mm. in a place that
0: was not quite in the experience that was fundamentally brutal. Mm. Now, in part two of this look back at this first season of Pop the History Makers, I'll be taking a look at the interviews with Justin Curry from Delamitri, John Watts from Fisher Z, Alexander Bard from Army of Lovers, and Mikhail Munzing from Snap. So look out for that one. But I'll leave you today with my favourite interview of the year the wonderful Sam Brown. What we had in common was loss. We were both incredibly close to our mothers. Sam's mum, Vicky, had also been a successful singer and I wondered what she remembered when she thought about her mother.
5: I have so many good memories of being with my mum and I think what happened for me was when she died, um, a part of her, sounds really bad, a better part of her lived on in me you know so I started to recognize her in myself almost like she was inhabiting me you know and I think and it is it's it's definitely a subconscious thing I don't think it's a conscious thing so whether it's my own brain doing that for me or whether it's a real thing where part of my mother's spirit does inhabit my body I don't know but you know it's fine with me because it means she's there Um, And obviously I have children and it is so sad because she was by far the nicest person in our family. The rest of us are twats, really.
0: Uh, I mean, you created an album um, in her honour. I did. Afterwards, 43 minutes, um, which I was listening to this morning and it completely moved me. (laughs) Oh, God! (laughs) <laughs> no because I wanted to listen to it before the before the interview and it completely moved me because I have the, you know a similar experience obviously and that and I thought that was wonderful and what you said at the end my mother is with me and i I don't know what that means either I do think it's just that you're so closely connected that they do feel like they're with you for the rest of your life and yeah. that is a very beautiful thing. one thing that i had afterwards was a complete reorientation. Because your parents, if you imagine like being on a train and your parents or and I think your closest parent is the train ahead. So they're the ones you're, you know, it's like you're orienting yourself towards the train ahead. You're following them. And then that train's gone. And it's like, oh, fuck, what do I do with my where where do I go now? What do I do with my life? And that album is for me, someone who's trying to grasp that and someone who's going through that through that process, which is the beauty of that album, was it, you know, you mentioned that it was hell afterwards and these interviews where you don't even sort of recognise yourself today. But was that a moment of reorienting yourself and really, like, deciding what to value in life had changed? Um,
5: yes, it was. I think it was all of those things. Um, one of the reviews of the album said it was therapy. And I think in some ways it was, I mean, I, it took me, I don't know how long it took me to write the album, but I literally was just at home. I was very lucky. I had I had a had house in Newton, which I loved, I had my piano in the, in the living room and, uh, and I just hold up. And luckily I could afford to not worry about money. And I just took the time I needed and I wrote the album and I played it again and again, and then we recorded it. Um, but I think uh I think it's quite interesting lyrically because as you say it has got everything in there hasn't it you know and and strangely 43 minutes has been by far the most the most I've been connected with my audience so I get a lot of letters and certainly at the time so so basically I recorded it and then uh uh, Howard Berman at uh, the record company he was head managing director of the record company he said his words were creatively it's brilliant commercially it's a disaster and he wanted me to just record a cover or something and stick it on the end so they had a sink and I said I, I don't think so you know so eventually so we couldn't get the album back but, but I was a recouped artist so eventually because my manager was arguing with the people there and blah 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 and I just went in one day and I said look Howard I said I, we I don't think we have a a future working relationship um, and I'm fully recouped. I'd like to go. And he let me go, it took me a while to get the album back. But then I did gigs, uh, Herbie Flowers helped me enormously. And he'd say, oh, there's this little gig by me in a church. Why don't, should we go and play a few songs off your album? Because he played on the album. So I did little bits and pieces like that. And then and then what happened was that really grew. It, was, it never sold loads of copies. But this connection with the audience group, because as we talked about before, the pain in whatever form it was in, was in the album. And actually, I think people and certainly for myself, if I listen to music, I want to hear the essence of the person that I'm listening to and, and, and people just really related to it. Because, of course, everybody loses somebody. You know. So it was an interesting, really interesting thing to look back on now, you know.
0: Sam Brown, tying up this look back on the first season of Pop the History Makers. Look out for part two and I'll see you sometime in January when I get my act together with a revamped season two. See you soon. You're listening to Pop the History Makers with me, Steve Blame.